Okay. Well, last Sunday we explored the importance of Christian community and the letters of the apostles to the various churches in the Roman Empire actually provide for us a model of what those close-knit relationships actually looked like in the first century. You know, we write one another when we can't be there with them in person. And so, what we write reflects as best we can what we would say if we were together. So, I want you to think before we even start this morning of the kind providence of God toward us. God used the limitations put on the apostles because of their travels, their imprisonments, and even their looming martyrdoms to ensure that what they were teaching everywhere in person was recorded for us who live centuries later. It's really a remarkable thing, best attested ancient documents in the world, translated into our language, where we get to actually read um, the writings of the apostles and of the prophets, uh, just as it was delivered to them by God. Long after they completed their earthly lives, we still benefit from the actual teaching of the apostles of the Lord Jesus. And what that means is that we have no reason to reinvent Christianity or to wonder whether what we're practicing at this time has anything to do with what was in the first century. We don't need to lose our way in a sea of human ideas and designs. We still have the breathed-out words of God delivered to us by the prophets and the apostles. And that means that we can be sure that the gospel that we believe is for real. It's the, it's the authentic, it's the genuine gospel that Christ gave to His apostles. And it also means that the lives we live that are rooted in the gospel can display the life of God powerfully at work in us so that it matches what Jesus taught and what God desires from us as those that have been born again. I say all this because we live in a world of fake news, because we live in a world of human beings who are all sinners by birth and by choice. You know, fake news is not a modern invention. And the good news of Christianity can suffer the same kinds of distortions. There there are all kinds of cultural pressures to twist the faith into the image of the times. And it's important for us to understand that this is not a modern invention problem. It's a sin problem. It's part of living in a world that's hostile to God. It was a threat in Thessalonica in the first century. It is a threat now in every culture, everywhere in this world, including our own. And it was this great concern that the Thessalonians hold fast to the faith that that serves as the backdrop of Paul's heartfelt letter to them. He knows what pressures they're under to back off from the gospel that the missionaries had preached to them and that they had received. And Paul was was practically beside himself with worry that they would somehow succumb to the pressure. When he found out from Timothy that they were holding firm, he could hardly contain his joy. And that is why he wrote this letter. Well, this theme of enduring faith dominates the passage that we look at this morning. It's custom-made for helping us hold fast to the faith in a world that tries to push us off course. So, follow with me as I read 1 Thessalonians 3, 1 through 8. 
Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you, and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you, and has brought us the good news of your faith and love, and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. If you look at this passage, we see first of all in verses 1 through 2, the urgent importance of strengthening one another's faith. It was important enough for him to send send Timothy away to check on them. In verses 3 through 5, we see the unavoidable pressures to move our faith off course. And then finally, in verses 6 through 8, the joyful encouragement and confirming one another's faith. We'll find that what Paul expresses here fits not only his own times and his own situations, but ours as well. First, consider with me the urgent importance of strengthening one another's faith. Let's read those first two verses again. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in the faith. Look at the how significant a colleague Timothy is to Paul. He often refers to him as his son in the faith, but here he refers to him as our brother because he has the life of God in him just as Paul did, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ. When we engage in, in sharing the gospel with others, when we're true to the faith, we're actually working together with God in the lives of other people, and God is working through us. So, so Timothy is intensely valuable to Paul. Evidently, Timothy and possibly Silas as well had had rejoined Paul while he was still in Athens before he went on to Corinth. But now Paul sends him again back up to Thessalonica to see in person what's actually going on. Here's a man that's valuable to Paul personally and professionally, but the need is so urgent of knowing that the Thessalonian believers are okay that Paul is willing, he uses words like abandonment, to be left alone to make sure that these believers are okay. It's worth the sacrifice. He explains Timothy's mission, a, a cause so important that it was worth whatever it would cost Paul to know how they were doing. Verse 5 will tell us that he sent Timothy to, to learn, to know about your faith, in-person observation. And here in this, these verses, in verse uh, two, he says it was to establish, to make you firm, to strengthen what is there to make sure it continued to hold, and, and to exhort you, to, to call alongside, to, to help in any way that was necessary. We all need reinforcement against the winds of opposition and deceit and intimidation and even 
uh, sufferings that are common to man. We need people to come alongside and kind of buttress our faith as we go through that. And then exhort is a, is a similar word. It's a word that has wide uh, use. It can mean to comfort. It can mean to, to exhort, like, um, like soldiers being trained and their drill sergeant coming alongside to keep them going and keep them in line. It can mean like a defense attorney or uh, coming alongside his client to defend him in a court of, of law in that adversarial environment. So, so Timothy went to provide these believers what they need to come alongside them and to establish them in their faith, their firm reliance on the body of truth that God has revealed. When you see faith with the definitive article, the definite article, the, it's referring to that body of doctrine of truth that is the gospel, and he wanted to strengthen them in that. Now, as you think about the significance of this, remember that, that these are people that Paul has already told us he is convinced were genuine believers chosen by God. But that confidence does not make him passive. It doesn't mean that he takes no pains to make sure they're okay and to help where he can. The reality is that brothers and sisters you think are just fine can be struggling Drifting, overwhelmed, it's important to look out for them. And we, we all know, we've been, those of you that have been members for some time, we all know that from time to time there are, there are situations that change and there are surprises that, that happen as, as believers go through rough periods of time or, or pull away from the faith and people we would never expected to do so. So I'd like you for a moment this morning just to think about the believers that you know personally. Okay? It's going to take a little bit of time, but I just want you to think right now in your mind's eye, who are the believers you know personally? And now I want you to, to narrow the scope of that to the believers that you know best. You might start with the family members with whom you live, or perhaps your, your roommates, or your co-workers that you work alongside nearly every day. It could be your classmates or your friends, friendships that have developed over time. It could be your, your neighbors. It could be persons in your life group or your Sunday school class or some other smaller group in the church or in the community, people that you actually know well. Okay, you have those people in mind. So let me ask you, how are they faring in their Christian faith? Or are you just assuming they're okay? Are they suffering in some way? Are they under attack? Are they struggling? Are they slipping? When's the last time that you made any really significant effort to know how they really are? And when's the last time you intentionally encouraged them or helped them or provided some kind of support and let them know that their well-being matters to you. And as I thought about this, you know, there's just, it's just so easy for us to assume people are okay. And, and maybe we see things that throw up flags, or maybe we know they're, they're going through a rough period, but we just assume, hey, 
they're a believer, and I'm sure God has given them grace, and, and they're, they're, just, they're just going along just fine. Well, instead of just assuming, if you actually know them well enough to have the conversation, and hopefully you have a number of people like that, ask. Find out how they're, how they're doing. Invite them out for coffee or for a meal, or, or just take time as we mill about before and after services to, to check in on them and, and see what you find out. Paul and Timothy's actions and words communicate how important strengthening one another's faith actually is, and and that it's not only important, but that it's urgent to follow up, because we, we really don't know when it's going to be too late. You don't know when the last time you're, you're going to see this friend before they go off the deep end or before God changes where they're living to where you don't have the opportunity anymore. So we want to be looking out for one another's faith. It's urgently important to strengthen one another's faith. Next thing that's part of this picture is the unavoidable pressures to move your case, your faith, off course unavoidable pressures that can move your faith off course. Paul talks about them in verses 3 through 5. That no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. When when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as has come to pass, and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. These verses actually provide clarity on on why those that you have confidence are genuine believers can be in trouble spiritually. These verses highlight why you could get into trouble spiritually, what kinds of pressures would come into your life that even though you're sure you belong to Jesus, could, could create some rough road or some side paths. First word he uses is a common word, afflictions, and it refers to pressure. Sometimes it's translated tribulation. For, so, so all those kinds of things that, that, that bring weight down on you and keep pressing you. And often these are, are pressures that continue. If it was just like a, a, a one-shot deal, you could, you could get past it, but so often these pressures just seem to go on and on and on and, and to multiply. And his prayer for them is that none of them would be moved, would be drawn away by these afflictions. He uses language that reminds us uh, of what is often translated being deceived to be drawn away. So the pressures that are on us can actually kind of squeeze us away from the Lord, away from the faith, and squeeze us into paths we never thought that we would go into. And then there's actually a personality involved, and that is the tempter. Actually, the word tempter is used only here and in Matthew 4, 3, where Satan is called the tempter, as he seeks to tempt Christ in the wilderness. The devil is the tempter. He's the adversary, that's what Satan means, the adversary of God and of God's people. He's the accuser of the brothers. He's the slanderer. That's what devil means, diabolos. He tempts believers into doing wrong, 
and then slanders them if they fall to the temptation. And even if they do right, he finds a way to make even their good works suspect. Remember how Satan treated righteous Job, accusing him of doing right only because God had prospered him. And, And Satan was more than happy to use all kinds of calamity, all kinds of affliction and pressure to get Job to turn against God, whatever it would take. Well, Paul feared that his labor would be in vain. When you poured your life into somebody, when you see them walk away from the truth or from the Lord, it's deeply painful. It's deeply painful. And that's what Paul was bracing himself for. So how did Paul equip the Thessalonians to hold up under the pressure and the affliction, to stand firm against the tempter's fiery darts and deceptive tactics designed to draw them away from the faith? Well, we learn in this passage that he he actually started early on, bracing them for the pushback that they would experience. And of course, right from the beginning, they experienced it. I mean, Paul and Silas are driven out of town because of the opposition and the mob and and the legal efforts that were arraigned against them. But Paul's words help us gain insight into the, the limitations and the purposes of these afflictions. I think sometimes when we hit these rough spots and when we, uh, particularly afflictions that we've never had to deal with before, perhaps they're frightening, might be debilitating, um, you might feel just intensely alone, betrayed. Um, when we hit those things, particularly for the first time, it, it feels like, like they've gone too far and that, that we just can't bear up under it. And yet, that Paul is going to teach us that there are actually limits, God-designed limits to the afflictions that we endure, and that there's actually a purpose behind those afflictions as well. He says we are destined for this. We were appointed for this. And so he refers not just to what Satan is doing, he refers to God God governing, God appointing what we're going through. Just, just as we see in the interaction of God with Satan, where Satan can only go so far, God puts limits on him. We see God do this regularly. We, we see God do this, for instance, in the life of Joseph, with all that he suffered from 17 on, and, and even before that, uh, all the tactics used against him, uh, all the false accusations, I mean, sold into slavery, and, and all of that God uses for a good purpose. It's really the same with us. God is master of turning what Satan means for evil into good. So, when we see this word, we're destined for it, we're appointed for it, we understand that our afflictions and even the temptations that are bringing pressure on us are, are not just necessary they are also beneficial. And, and it takes faith to hold on to that, but it's faith in the reliability and the character of God. You see, pressure and opposition push us to develop strength. 
They call us to practice vigilance, and they teach us that the power of God is greater than that of Satan and of this world. Paul and his fellow missionaries, along with the other apostles, regularly trained their converts to expect and to withstand troubles that assaulted their faith. Acts 14.22, for instance, after the first missionary journey, they went back through uh, the various areas where they had planted churches, strengthening the souls of the disciples and encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. In 1 Peter 1, Peter writes about our own precious salvation those who belong to God, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In other words, we haven't experienced the full measure of what God is doing in us. In this you rejoice, in that sure future, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I mean, it reminds us a lot of what Paul said uh, last week about you're our glory and our joy. You know, we find great joy in what God is doing in you and as we think about the Lord Jesus coming. And then 1 Peter 4, verses 12 through 13, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering. Same thing happened, same kind of thing happened to him, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Well, we've been blessed to live in a country where there's been great religious freedom for many years. Half of the believers in the world, however, live in regions where they regularly face serious mistreatment for their faith. Not just some insult on Facebook, but ostracization, confiscation of the property, imprisonment, torture, and even death. And we look at that, and it's easy for us to fear that, or, or to think that somehow that's the only way that the tempter ever works. And that's the only kind of affliction and pressure and persecution that Christians ever face. But we're naive to think that the war against God and His people does not exist here just as much in those areas of the world where it's just in your face. When we see signs of growing hostility to the faith, we must not value the goodwill to which we are accustomed, value it so much that we cave to the slightest pressure. You know, as I look at our own culture today and I look at the state of, uh, of Christianity and our churches, we're so sensitive. We're so easily cowed and intimidated because we're not used to being mistreated. We're used to some measure of respectability. I mean, you know, it's been religion in its place for a long time in our country, but 
people have believed that religion has a place, at least to have some respectability. Well, that's changing. It's changing in some sectors more than other. And, but I just want to encourage you that this is not, this is not something for us to fear and it's certainly not something for us to cave to. In the last few decades, gospel-believing Christians have so valued the good graces of the culture that, that we, go to, we go to great lengths to try to preserve it, even when it means trimming the truth. And what's more troubling is how many professing Christians cast stones at the brothers who won't do that, in order to gain credibility with a culture that has redefined what goodness even means. So I want to encourage you to hold firm. Just don't, don't be rattled by this. Don't, don't shift. It's, it's really a, a shifting. You know, the devil's more often to be feared when he fawns and when he roars. I mean, we're, we're used to his being nice, Okay. And, and when people aren't nice, we, we say, oh, well, let, let me cave on something so that, that you'll still treat me nice. Well, where does that stop? Where does that stop? But we ought to treat all people well. We ought to treat everyone as made in the image of God, treat them with dignity and, and respect. We ought to engage them. But it doesn't help them for us to have a fearful, fretful kind of spirit toward the changes that happen in culture. Longtime church members and beloved pastors have become mouthpieces for the enemy, ushering others into a path of deconstruction that leads them away from Christ and his gospel. And it's, it's tragic. But, but it really, I think, has to do with this, wait a minute, I was destined, I was appointed to facing pushback. I mean, think it, it, logically it makes sense. How can we live in a world hostile to God and not have some kind of pushback? Even when we're being like super good and super nice. Sometimes we act like jerks and we deserve the, the pushback. But, but don't think that that's the only people that get pushback. Because we live in a world that's at odds with Jesus. So let me ask you, what, what pressures or afflictions are undermining your faith or that of believers that you know? You know, as I look across the congregation and, you know, the better you get to know the people that are part of your church family, the more you know about just the huge variety of difficulties that, that people are facing, the things that can really shake them. And a lot of these things we've been through together, um, some of these things folk hold alone, but what do you know about us in terms of, of that, and what are you facing yourself? What temptations are having the effect of drawing you or others you know away from the Lord? You know, sometimes what, what we endure in terms of suffering is the battle against our own sin nature, that it just gets, we get tired of it. And, and we can reach a point where we say, well, I'm just going to give in. I'm tired of fighting. Okay? And since the scriptures say that we are appointed to these afflictions and temptations, how, how do you see God using these difficulties to strengthen your faith rather than to destroy it? What, what, if, what if whatever you're enduring right now, 
is not, in keeping with what we're taught in the Word of God, is not to destroy you. Now, Satan would like to do that. But God is actually using Satan's effort under control to actually strengthen you and make you better. What if you took that attitude toward it? Instead of feeling like your world's falling apart. And, and there are times that we actually do feel that way. So finally, in verses 6 through 8, we have the joyful encouragement of it confirming one another's faith. Verse 6, but now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. And we'll stop right there mid-sentence. Did you notice that the words good news? Usually, usually he uses that terminology to evangelize. He uses that in terms of the gospel. There, there's a close connection between the gospel of Jesus Christ and the good news of seeing people that are staying true to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Part of the good news is the effect it has, the powerful effect it has on people that, that actually believe it, that are born again. It, it's part of, it, it's kind of like a, a down payment, a, a sample of the best that's yet to come. When we see people transform by the gospel, go from being pagan and idol worshipers and, and to worshipers of Jesus, see their lives changing because of the gospel, and see them hold firm in the midst of tremendous pressure to abandon their faith. And he describes what the Christian life looks like. Your faith and your love, the good news of your faith and your love. Someone has described this as really as a sum total of godliness. Saving faith in God unfailingly produces a loving heart and loving action. And we saw that in our study of 1 John. I mean, one of the things you see in Christians that are growing in the Lord is their love grows. And if their love doesn't grow, then they're not closer to the Lord. They may not even know the Lord. Okay? The faith and the love go together. And here it was marked by the Thessalonian believers still holding Paul and his companions in their minds with fondness. They hadn't been there that long. And longing to see them again. It was not a case of out of sight, out of mind. He goes on to say in verses 7 and 8, For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we've been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you're standing fast in the Lord. You know, Paul and his colleagues faced stress distress and affliction too. It wasn't just the Thessalonian believers going through it. In fact, Paul had been through this a lot, and the Thessalonians had joined him in this experience. So, so Paul faces the affliction of being driven out of Thessalonica, and Berea, and then going down to, to Athens, being there alone. He faces that loneliness. Um, and, and then when he moves on to the city of Corinth, across from Athens, some of the Jews of the synagogue there strongly opposed him so much that they had to move their gospel efforts next door. And then in the, the way God typically works, the, the ruler of the synagogue actually trusted in Christ. That's, I think that's just so cool, this whole family, after they got kicked out of the synagogue. And in time, uh, these 
enemies of the gospel made concerted effort against Paul. They brought legal charges against him, brought him before the proconsul of the region, Gallio. But Gallio threw out the accusers, and Paul and his companions were able to stay longer. But so you had this mounting opposition. And in the midst of that, the report came that the persecuted believers in Thessalonica were thriving. And that gave Paul fresh courage. Their pains and their labors were not in vain. The Thessalonian Christians were standing fast. In contrast to the stony ground believers Jesus talked about who received the word with joy but then shrivel up as soon as they face the heat of affliction. Paul and his companions were comforted by the news. It's the same word that was translated exhort back in verse 2. So you have Timothy going to the Thessalonians to exhort and to comfort them, and then Paul turns it around and said, you comforted us. You came alongside of us and strengthened us. Just as Timothy comforted and strengthened the Thessalonian believers, their faithfulness comforted and strengthened Paul. Now, now think about this, because we, we tend to think about those that have been our mentors and those that have been our teachers, our parents, those that have, have trained us in the way. We don't think about how much our life actually affects them. But your own continued faithfulness to Christ in the face of pressure and temptation benefits not just you, but all the believers who know you, including those who have poured their lives into yours. Now, as I thought about this, I thought, just, this is just so helpful as we think about our lives. You, you can be a child in elementary school. You can be a, a teenager. Maybe you're in, in college, and, and perhaps you've had the privilege of, of parents and teachers who've taught you gospel truth. Well, you can strengthen their faith by your own steadfastness in the truth. You can be seven years old, you actually know Jesus, you can strengthen the faith of your parents by being obedient and showing them honor. You can strengthen the faith of your parents and your grandparents as a teenager by not taking foolish paths that destroy people, but instead being someone who, who is zealous to pursue God. Instead of taking risks that are destructive and sinful, you're willing to take risks to advance the gospel. That kind of life strengthens other people. Live what you've been taught. Don't wait to serve Jesus. For one thing, you don't know how much time you actually have. Do it now. Not just for yourself, but for, for everyone connected to you. And I think, you know, I think as we get older, particularly if we have any responsibility, we know there's lots of people connected to us. We know that, that if we stumble, if we deviate, that lots of people are going to be hurt. But, but recognize that's always the case. All the connections that you have with, with people, if, if you turn away, if, if you don't follow the Lord, you're, you're going to impact them not for good, but for ill. And that also sets an opportunity for you. Think about the impact of your life. I mean, what, what would be the impact of, say, a 17-year-old who is passionate about serving Jesus 
who's regularly in the Word, who prays, who, who reaches out to fellow classmates and, and prays with them and encourages them, uh, one who shares the gospel, what would that person do to an entire youth group? What would people like that do to an entire community that, that were living that way before God? You know, what, what would happen if, if, you know, the more Christian businessmen there are that they're not in it just for the money, they're in it for Christ, and, and they're regularly sharing the gospel. What would happen to those that go into public service if, if they couldn't be bought? If they were like Daniel or, or Joseph or Nehemiah, what, what would happen in that sphere of influence? There's no telling. What would happen among pastors and deacons where they, they're not just doing their, their religious duty. They, they actually love God. And they love his people, and they live that way publicly and privately. No wonder, no wonder Paul says, now we live. To know that the Thessalonian believers are doing well was life-giving to Paul. It, it infused vital energy into his ongoing gospel ministry. He's now in the city of Corinth, where he's facing significant opposition as well. In fact, it it was bad enough that Jesus himself appeared to Paul by night to encourage him that the Lord had many more people in that city who had yet to trust in Jesus, but who would? The more common way Jesus strengthens believers is not through those midnight visitations, as through the steadfast faith of those to whom they've ministered. Because when people fall away, it has the opposite effect. It discourages, it weakens the hands of those that are trying to serve Jesus. So who, who are those that, who've contributed to your faith? You know, think about those that really have been valuable instruments in the hand of God to, to impact your life for good. And in what ways is your walk with the Lord in the face of difficulties and encouragement to them that their labors are not in vain. What joy and comfort can you bring to believers who care about you because you're walking with God? This earnest concern for the faith of others is from the heart of Jesus himself. I was reminded of his words to Peter in Luke 22. Simon, Simon, uses his old name. Behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, prove that you were a fraud. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. Well, what was Jesus' prayer for Peter like? We're not told the actual words, but we can listen to his intercession for his followers, an intercession we know continues to this day. We know that from the book of Hebrews. In John 17, Jesus prays, I do not ask that you take them out of the world where we have all this affliction, all this temptation, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them. Make them yours in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I've sent them into the world. For their sake, I consecrate myself 
that they also may be sanctified in truth. Enduring faith is priceless. Its value is set by Jesus Christ himself, his own lifeblood poured out on the cross. It's worth going to all lengths to strengthen and to preserve it. It stands in the face of significant pressure and temptation of this world. Its source is a source of great comfort and joy in life to all those that are committed to advancing the gospel in the lives of others. The urgent importance of strengthening one another's faith in the face of unavoidable pressures to move our faith off course brings joyful encouragement of confirming one another's faith. May God grant us this kind of life even this week as we live in light of the faith of Jesus. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for your word and how instructive it is and practical it is. And Lord, we love one another here. We have many of us, known one another for many years. We poured our lives into one another. We pray that we each might hold firm, that we might value what you have done for us through the ministry of other people. And Lord, that we might bring joy to them and to you by holding fast. Well, God, we know we can't do this on our own. So we know that the one who has destined us for this, who's appointed us to these difficulties, will use them to strengthen us. Help us hold fast for the glory of Jesus, our Savior and our Lord, in whose name we pray, amen.